The guys that are involved today are obviously early, early for the family offices, some of the early hedge, hedge funds that started with two dudes in a garage, right? That are now like multi-billion dollar hedge funds themselves. Um, but like the biggest bucket still hasn't invested in Bitcoin, right? Which is crazy to kind of think about. That's dope. This podcast is sponsored by Vald. Please stay tuned for more information on this amazing company later in the episode. In the evolution of Bitcoin and crypto, one of the underlying stories that's rarely told is the infrastructure, right? Legacy systems have these massive, massive systems for allowing money to move freely throughout. And that was something that's been lacking until recent years in the crypto space. Well, Michael Morrow, the CEO of Genesis, is one of the first to build that. He built a prime brokerage, which allows institutional investors big money to really behave in the same way in the crypto space as they do in the legacy markets that they're familiar with. We're going to talk about everything prime brokerage and how institutional money is moving in the crypto space. So listen, it's industry day. The institutionalization of crypto and Bitcoin is the conversation, but all of that requires obviously robust and real infrastructure that we have in legacy markets. Obviously, that's what you guys provided Genesis. And for those of you who don't know, this is Michael Moore, the CEO of Genesis. So listen, what is a prime brokerage? I think that so many people don't even understand the term and it means something to so many different people. Yeah. So in traditional markets, a prime broker, you can kind of think of them as sometimes they're investment banks and sort of like other institutional brokers who tries to provide like a bundle of services, right? Right. Um, they try to take things that sometimes are run by separate companies altogether, like a trading firm versus a custodian versus a, uh, a lender. A prime broker is the attempt to kind of bundle together all of those services under one roof, mostly for efficiency of capital. Um, the, the, the speed at which you're able to deploy capital and, and move that cash around in traditional markets, you don't need to move securities around. That's not a thing. Right. Um, uh, like you do in crypto, right? Um, and uh, it is, is made easier because of the fact that you work with one prime broker. And the biggest value add that most prime brokers are able to do is to lend you money. Yeah. Right? You trade with them. And then you use their custody services, so you know exactly what their investment risk profile looks like. And then it, Prime Broker is able to lend dollars against that position. Um, as well as it also provides something called cross-margining, which is the ability to look at positions across various venues, aggregate them again, and provide the right level of risk capital. Which is actually something that we're starting to see for the first time on retail mm -hmm. crypto exchanges. Mm -hmm. Right, I mean, FTX obviously has cross-margining, and do. I think that's been a pretty big innovation for your average person, obviously not your institution who can't, uh, you know, work with Genesis. Yeah, look, I, I think a lot of the, um, the, the institutions that ultimately kind of work with us is because we kind of look like them, we talk like them, um, except we trade crypto. But was that the idea? Is that why you started it? Because somebody needed to look like them and talk like them? So let's step back. So this is 2012 when we, um, we were trying to think, and we were running like a bond trading desk. We were literally, obviously, this before, before Bitcoin, and we were like a traditional broker-dealer trading bonds. Um, and uh, we, we, you know, so we were like, okay, let's take a look at Bitcoin. I said, okay, what's Bitcoin? First of all, what is it, <laughs> right? Um, and why would people care from an institutional perspective? Like, what, what, what do you need to buy Bitcoin? Um, 
And you know, what we realized that the bonds that we were trading uh, were the old like mortgage-backed securities, CDOs, like things that blew up in the financial crisis, yeah. right? Um, things that were worth a dollar is now worth like 20 cents on a dollar. And so they were e-liquid, hard to value, not traded on a traditional exchange. And we looked at Bitcoin, we were like, you know what, Bitcoin shares those same characteristics. It's e-liquid, it's esoteric, hard to value, off the run, like it, tra it trades just like everything else we're trading. Like, you know what, let's try to add Bitcoin to our trading desk. So like, okay, so we tried to change bonds and Bitcoin, which could not have been more separate, right? right. But we knew, so, but we were a broker-dealer at the time, we still are today, and we felt that was really, really important because Bitcoin, if you think Bitcoin is still the Wild West today, and you can argue that, imagine what this was like 2013, right? Yeah. Um, and, and I think to get institutional investors involved and interested in Bitcoin, they needed to trust the companies that they were dealing with. And we were regulated, SEC, FINRA, the bit license came along a few years later, all of that stuff, and I think we were like the, the warm blanket right, um, to kind of make investors feel better. So that was always the goal. Let's try to bridge institutional capital and crypto. Let's try to build the products and services that institutions get in equities and bonds and FX and everything else, and try to replicate that somehow into the crypto ecosystem. But obviously do it a lot better than the existing guys yeah. are doing it. It seems like that would be actually much more difficult now that Bitcoin, Bitcoin is so much on the regulatory radar, mm -hmm. right? I think it was an asset that people were dismissive of at that time, so you probably were able to add it with minimal friction. That, that is 100% correct. Um, when we amended our broker-dealer license and to trade Bitcoin, I don't think they knew. They didn't know, and so they said, okay, and we started trading Bitcoin pretty much right away. And then like 2014, 15, a lot of companies tried to start broker-dealers or change it, and like the SEC FINRA sat on their applications and didn't approve any of them. Um, I think that's starting to change now, um, but yeah, that gave us a huge head start on everybody else because we were early. Yeah, but at that point, you were just adding another asset. That's right. Right. That's right. And at this point, and we weren't crypto only. Right. right? Of we were trading a whole bunch of it was other. Just stuff, an, another right? so, another asset to yeah. add for for your clients and customers. Did you at any point then envision what this would be now? No. No way. No way. Um, so we first started trading Bitcoin and like. You know, and then we were OTC, right? So we were literally phone brokerage, trying to find buyers and trying to find sellers. The sellers at the time were the early, early Bitcoin guys. So they're the cypherpunks, they're the anarchists, libertarians, the true guys that believe that the banks caused the financial crisis. Arguably, they did. They, they did, did, by right? the way. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Fair. therefore, they need to build a better financial system, right? And Bitcoin, they value, they believe in Bitcoin from that perspective, as opposed to this can be worth a million dollars one day. Right, right? It was kind of the beliefs and tenets of the core principles of Bitcoin, and that's why they were in it. Um, we were a regulated broker-dealer, right? And so in a way, we kind of looked like the banks. Yeah. So we had a hard time really breaking into that crypto crowd because as a regulated institution, we had to collect driver's licenses. Yeah. We had to do background checks for AML, KYC purposes. And they were like, I'm not giving you my driver's license. Like, they still won't. Right, right. <laughs> and they're like, we're going to take the driver's license and give it right to the IRS or something, right? Go get them, guys, that type of stuff. So we had a hard time, I think, trying to build that trust. Um, at the same time, I had no buyers, right? Because my clients, again, we were bond traders. So we were trying to go after the bond guys to try to buy some Bitcoin. You couldn't find two asset classes that are more desperate, right, different than those two. Um, and just all, they'd hang up the phone on us. They wouldn't return our emails, like nothing. Um, and so the first few months of trying to figure it out, like, 
if somebody would come in, buy a million dollars worth of Bitcoin, and then it might be like hours, if not days, until the seller of a Bitcoin, like a million dollars came in. Like you couldn't match, you know, in a Swiss fashion to do kind of a trade. And so we had to buy a bunch of Bitcoin. We kept that on our balance sheet for working capital purposes. And, and uh, that's how we did it. And then, but 2013, if you remember, was great. Because the price went from like 100 bucks to like 1200 or yeah. 1300 at the end of the year, right? Yeah. Um, and then three months later, Gox happened. And then the price obviously plummeted. And that's really when we were like, oh, this is it. We're done. Like Bitcoin is going to zero. Um, this is kind of that moment where um, the whole thing was going to be over. And, but, it, but when it didn't, when the price kind of hovered around $100, $200, it didn't really go below it. That's really when I first really became, oh, wait, this might be something. And this was, you know, this is- Because you were already years into right. doing business yeah. uh, around, around this asset. So you thought at that time, like everyone else did, very high percentage chance of things done. Correct. Going to I zero. Did. did you ever feel that way again? Did 18, 19, the crypto winter at that point make you feel that way or is it you were a seasoned veteran and no fear? It's funny, so 2014, so as, as scary as kind of the Gox situation was, the worst time was the three years or so of the crypto winter. Yeah. that followed, right? Where it's, it's one thing when the price is going down, yeah, people get scared and volatility and all that. The worst is indifference. People stopped caring. Uh, people didn't, Bitcoin wasn't in the news, like no one wanted to talk about it. And here we are trying to get people excited about this yeah. new thing, no one cared. And I think apathy was the hardest part of trying to kind of manage through that period of time. And I think it certainly required true belief, right? In, in, in the technology um, and, and the potential for it to be an asset class. But like when, after that, after the 2017 run, obviously comes and we go to 20K or whatever we did. Even in 2018, I did not think Bitcoin was gonna go to zero. Um, and you know, right before the start of the pandemic, we had the Bitcoin Black Thursday, whatever yeah, it was, March the 50% yep. right, intraday drawdown. Even at that point of time, I, don't, I think everyone was like waiting to buy. I was gonna say, right. that, that was the biggest buying opportunity. And even it. in the panic, that was the first time I saw people en masse be like, I'm gonna puke, but I'm also gonna buy this Correct. <laughs> and so it was not a fear of zero. It's, yeah, it's scary, but at the same time, I'm looking to buy. Um, so that fear of zero, going to zero thing, is, it's, it's not there in my head. Your fear of zero is gone. Do you think the narrative of zero is also gone? Because that was still the narrative in 18, 19, 20. Even as it started to rise, there was still this loud sort of, obviously it was a loud minority that yep. said, this asset's going to zero. It's going to zero. The funny, the funny part about the whole thing is no one was willing to put their money with their mouth open. <laughs> Nobody's shorting it to zero. I have a lending debt. <laughs> you know exactly <laughs> who's shorting it. Yeah. Right? Um, and, uh, and all the people that said Bitcoin will go to zero, I don't, I don't, they just didn't do anything, right? They were like, this isn't for me, I'm not touching it. But they also knew, like, really that, like, you know, yeah, they might, the might, the percentage of it going to might, might be 1%, 2%, yeah. even to them. Yeah. So they were, from a probability perspective, they were willing to take that. can't put your money there. No, no way. So now we've climbed almost yep. every hurdle you've seen for the last 10-ish yep. years, but there's still more. Yep. Do you think that there's anything on your radar that could still, I'm not talking about a go to zero event, but that could threaten the, you know, the sort of core momentum that we've seen in the asset, even though obviously we've seen a dip now. Mm -hmm. A dip when you're talking about the 40,000s is kind of a it's dream. It's a welcome when you zoom dip, yes. absolutely. Um, look, I, I think um, the biggest risks are gonna be in a lot around legal regulatory. I fear policymakers just don't understand the asset class. 
regulators and lawmakers certainly don't know enough about it. And so I think they'll pass um, legislation, regulation that doesn't make sense, right? Um, and uh, that education hurdle of the people that actually make the laws, I think, is of critical importance. Um, and I fear that they'll get it wrong. Right. Um, so that's one risk. Number two, it's certainly kind of related to Bitcoin. There's a huge, you know, Bitcoin melts polar ice caps and kind of the environmental, you know, pushback against kind of crypto that exists today. Um, again, I think that's something that can be solved through um, education, right? Um, and think about, you know, where does power come from? What does energy come from? Let's kind of start there as opposed to just focusing on energy consumption outright, right? Um, I think that narrative, um, I think there's strong funding around, you know, proof of work um, systems. Um, I spoke at a conference the other day and there were protesters outside, the environmentalists saying, we love crypto, but make it all go to proof of stake. You know, they're asking me on stage why Bitcoin doesn't go to proof of stake. It's like, can't you do, I was like, can I change it to proof of? Yeah, let me call. Let me call my guy. <laughs> exactly. I know Satoshi. Let me call Bitcoin Satoshi, Incorporated yeah. and, and, and and have a talk. Um, and and then the third narrative. Obviously, we've seen a lot around. You know, previously it was China controls Bitcoin. Right. Of course. Right. Um, China got out of Bitcoin, shut it down, which I think is probably the biggest strategic mistake that they uh, possibly. And, and just to like as a side note, before that, uh, we obviously said we need all of this centralization out of China. And then when it actually happened, people said, this is so bearish for Bitcoin, China's banning Bitcoin. But, uh, right, but. You can have it both ways, right? <laughs> uh, but um, obviously the migration of hash power kind of out of China um, and kind of crypto businesses out of China, like I said, I think one, that's a huge mistake from China. But at the same time, um, that was the, the China controls Bitcoin narrative. What we've seen in the last um, last month, two months with the Russia-Ukraine conflict and the tragedy of, of all of it and, and figuring out who's adopting Bitcoin, what's Russia being used for. My fear is that Russians starting to use Bitcoin is going to become the next environmental. This is why China is bad because Russia is now starting to use it, right? So we just shift, we just we shift, just make shift countries, enemies. we shift, you know, who the bad guy is. And typically you, you see it a lot, right? Russia is always the bad guy in movies or, you know. Right, and we've already seen the narrative for circumventing sanctions, which we know is nonsense and all that, but you're saying that that sort of narrative explodes that, that into exists. a much bigger Correct. problem. Correct. Now, Bitcoin doesn't care, right? Of course, Bitcoin but... is a protocol everyone can use. That's the beauty of it. But I think from a press narrative, what politicians might do to uh, looking for reasons to not like Bitcoin, like I feel like that helps kind of stoke that flame. And all of that is education, it's right? But, but, but at this point, it's not education, educating the masses. It's calling your senator, your congressperson, and, and uh, educating them on the asset. Do you feel some optimism that they're starting to actually listen, though? Here's the thing. Um, yes. Um, the hard part is most politicians want, like, a three-minute pitch. Yeah. That's, like, their attention span, and that's all it. And, and, and crypto, blockchain, Bitcoin is more complicated than that, <laughs> right? And so um, I, I think capturing their attention is difficult. However, um, what we've seen certain in the last 6 to 12 months, we've seen a lot of, like, crypto super PACs and things like that kind of, like, forming, and that's real. Because I, of the infrastructure. Correct, right, you know? Um, and, and, I, and I do feel that, like, that narrative around, wow, um, one, recognizing that like the crypto friendly crowd is kind of like whatever, 30, 35 and lower, and no one else kind of owns Bitcoin like above 35, right? I'm 44 and I feel like I'm probably the only one, I'm, right? I'm 45. Exactly, right? <laughs> we're, we're the outliers here um, within, within our age cohort. 
Uh, but as kind of the older generation moves on, the younger generation comes up, I do think politicians realize that the younger generation has an entirely different um, feel towards crypto than certainly kind of their older constituents. And, and I think their policies and what matters to them and their constituencies changes for the better, right? For, for the crypto, so they have to. Otherwise, their opposition that is more crypto friendly would raise all kinds of donation dollars and, yeah. and, and kind of, you know, uh, and, and lose, lose election. Guys, I have a serious question for you. How much interest are you earning in your bank account? Is it 0.00001% or something similar? We all know by now that there's a better way in crypto, but you want to be using the best platform possible, and that is Vald. I have been using it myself now for quite a while, earning the highest interest rates in the industry. 12.68% on stablecoin, 6.7% on ETH and Bitcoin, and earning yield on a ton of other assets. But it's so much more than that, guys. They have a robust exchange. You can swap your coins. And they have the amazing automatic investment plan where you can dollar cost average, or more importantly, buy the dip automatically. We know that when the dip actually comes, nobody buys it because they're scared. Well, you can automate that process now with Vault. Guys, this platform is absolutely incredible. It does everything. They're backed by Pantera and Coinbase Ventures. You really can't ask for anything more. And if you use the link right down below, you get a 40% kickback on trading fees, 5% commission on interest payouts, and 5% commission on loan interest. Guys, sign up right now at thewolfofallstreets.info slash VALD. That's V-A-U-L-D. Do it now, seriously. Yeah, I mean, the optimistic take is they start to listen and they start to care. The pessimistic take is they only care about getting reelected and they'll say whatever it takes. <laughs> you know what? In a way. Which is fine. By the way, it gets, us where, favor, it gets us where we needed to it be, but it's it gets a funny... us the outcomes we need it, for sure. Um, my hope, though, is that this becomes a bipartisan effort. I don't understand why Bitcoin is, is you know, liberal or conservative. No. You know, like, I, I don't get it. Um, and so I do. I mean, and we've started to see some of that, right? We've started to see some folks on both sides of the aisle kind of come to support Bitcoin. But it is very weird right now. I feel like today conservatives are more pro-Bitcoin than, than liberals. I so wonder how much of that is just what we see in the media. It because could I, be. there are people on both sides of the aisle it who are be. very... Yeah pro-privacy and pro-freedom uh, and pro-technology, right? Yeah, but like, and, and like we should have these really loud voices on the polls. You're absolutely right. And, and you think that things like financial inclusion, right? And Banking the unbanked, and, all of that yeah. stuff will play right into kind of the Democrats. <laughs> but it has not played out so far. No, it hasn't at all. So what are you seeing actually as the institutional trade right now? Obviously, we've seen like we've had these sort of phases, right? The GBTC premium cash and carry, whatever it is, how, how are institutions generally approaching the asset now to safely invest? Because we're not really seeing as many co companies put it on the balance sheet as we thought would be a so year we, ago. We actually did over $10 billion of transactions with corporations last year, right? Huge. They were, um, so it's not just kind of the micro strategies and the Teslas, um, but you don't hear about it because one, most of them are overseas, so yeah. non-US companies, and many of them are private companies. Right. And so they don't have to disclose stuff. There's no 8K things to be filed. Right. And so you don't hear about companies in Latin America that bought Bitcoin for the Treasury right. or companies in Southeast Asia that did. They did it with us. We're continuing to work with them. And so I do think that's still um, this become an under a smaller story for sure, because they're not big household names doing it. But I think the narrative's still there on the institutional side. Look, what every bank right now is trying to figure out 
is what is my Bitcoin or crypto strategy? What is my plan? Um, and you know, I, and many of them, again, they're not going to touch spot crypto. They don't want to worry about custody or touching Bitcoin or manipulation. Or, and all or the, right. what if three holders ago was a bad dude, right? right? And now I'm in the chain uh, on the provenance of, of those dirty. So we need the spot coins, ETF. Right? I mean, is that so? They need synthetic cash settled derivatives of, of Bitcoin. Um, and most of the time, though, it's interesting. It's the private banks. It's the private banks and that are trying to figure out what structured product can I create with Bitcoin so I can sell that to my private wealth management clients. I mean, we just saw Silvergate give uh, MicroStrategy a two hundred five million dollar loan right. to buy more Bitcoin. <laughs> Is it right? Which I mean, that would a year ago, two years ago, you, oh, that absolutely. would have been a very I mean, surprising. The lending thing loan. didn't exist until whatever four years ago when we started it, right? And yeah. so I do think that evolution around. Um, you know, uh, the lending market, I think, is tremendous because, in my mind, Bitcoin is the best collateral in the world. Of course. Uh, of it course. Is. You can actually, they can hold it. They can tell, and you can <laughs> trade it. You can trade millions and billions of it on Christmas morning. Right. Right. Markets are shot 24 or No, it doesn't matter. You can do this. Right. And you have a mark to market on it every second of the day. You know, the value yeah. of something, you know. Yeah. Um, so I think all of these things are evolutions uh, of the product. So I do think we'll continue to see banks create trade options and futures and other cash settled things. I think they'll do structured products, um, but they are nowhere near like trading the, the spot market of Bitcoin. That's interesting. Arthur Hayes just wrote a pretty incredible medium. I don't know if you saw, I think he called it five ducking digits or something, <laughs> talking about the future price of Ethereum being 10,000. But it was an interesting approach, mm -hmm. right? He said sort of that it could be treated like a commodity linked bond. Mm -hmm. Once it goes to proof of stake, there's a 10 to 15% yield. Mm -hmm. It's deflationary. Um, do you, and he talked about the carry trade mm -hmm. there, yes. right? You guys would be a prime place for an institution that wants to make a trade like that to come, right? Because you can lend them Absolutely. the USD. Absolutely, we've done rate. it with Bitcoin and the CME futures product. Um, and so anywhere, look, market neutral trades that actually pay you decent return, I mean, the institutions are going to be all over it. If they don't have to make a directional bet on the price of Bitcoin, yet they can arbitrage the inefficiencies of, of, of markets like that. I mean, we, we had in the bull run in last year, um, at one point, our interest rate to borrow cash from Genesis was like in the mid teens, okay? You're like, oh my God, why are you, why is anyone paying you 15, 16, even 20% to borrow dollars? But that's because they were able to take that dollar and put on that big cash and carry trade and earn 30%. It's free money. Right? Yeah, you might pay out 15, but you're net 15 and you've done absolutely nothing as far as taking a directional bet. They'll do that all day long. And as more instruments come online like that for Ethereum and, uh, and the CME creates more futures products and things like that, that arbitrage opportunity is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's more money flowing into the institutions. Right. And we're talking about institutions, but it's financial. We're talking about hedge funds. Yes. Right. When do we get the big wall, the endowments? The pension funds are they just waiting for? Uh, are they waiting for a vehicle that their risk managers who have been looking at this for four years are comfortable with? I think they need an ETF. In, in spot the, ETF. I, I do think they need a spot ETF in, in this case. And look, their play so far has been the VC route, right? Let's cut checks into a bunch of different startups and or see how it goes. Or it's like a fund of funds approach where they'll just like spray and pray a bunch of money into a bunch of different places and see how it goes. Um, many, uh, most of them have not said, hey, I want to put Bitcoin on my balance sheet. Right. Right. And that's all we were talking about uh, 
14 months ago. I think. Right, as 2021 came in, the narrative of crypto was MicroStrategy, yep. Tesla, every company is gonna add this, of course, doesn't make much sense for them when you look at the way they actually report their taxes. Yep. But then the story, as you just sort of touched on, ended up being VC in Web3. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you think that's what we still see continue? It seems like anyone and their mother can raise a billion dollar fund now. <laughs> I think once, at some point, the, the valuations in the private market, which I think are overvalued, certainly relative to the public market, um, you'll get to a point where you rather own a dollar of Bitcoin, right, outright, than to take a dollar of that and invest in some crypto startup, right? At some relative valuation, that has to make sense, where owning the underlying makes more sense to you from a valuation returns perspective than putting a dollar and owning a dollar of stock in some startup. Um, but... Um, if I own a dollar of stock in a startup, I know how to custody that. Right. I don't have to worry about securities and hacks and thefts and things like that. Um, and, uh, and, and obviously, if you own a dollar of outright Bitcoin, that's the things you have to think about. Yeah. So do you think this is just part of sort of the cycle? You know, I do. That we see it. It's funny because you've been here for yeah. 10 years of cycles and there was always the trader cycle of, you know, Bitcoin goes sideways, money goes into altcoins, sort of the washing machine between Bitcoin and altcoins. But th that's kind of a grander description of the same thing now with institutions. I think you'll get to a point where a lot of funds will have like a 60-40 or 70-30 allocation between stocks and tokens, right? And, and, uh, but you just haven't seen that token part, certainly kind of at the endowment stage today. You were a bond guy of 60-40 dead. I was. <laughs> I, you know what? I'd actually, I'd want more liquidity. Right, and so I'd probably head more go towards the token route than the equity route, frankly. Um, but at the same time, the crypto market, you know, even running a, a company like Genesis, like I'm so heads down on, on the business that like there are too many things happening for me to like keep up with, right? Like no human being can keep can up with possibly, the 24/7 market. It's, it's a it's a blessing and a curse. New protocol, new coin, whatever, new layer one. You're like, oh my, how do I keep track with all of this stuff? It is impossible. So imagine what it's like for the institutional investor. That is doing crypto part time. There is no such thing as doing crypto part time and being good at it. There's no, no and there's no and there's no such thing as just being one guy doing no, crypto by there's yourself. There's no way. You cannot generate alpha that way. Wow, it's, it's really just so interesting. But doesn't that <laughs> just make you exciting for excited for what's to come? A hundred percent, because we've gotten to this point. To your point, without the true, true old school institutions still getting involved, right? The guys that are involved today are obviously early, early for the family offices, some of the early hedge, hedge funds that started with two dudes in a garage, right, that are now like multi-billion dollar hedge funds themselves. Um, but like the biggest bucket still hasn't invested in Bitcoin, right, which is crazy to kind of think about. Um, so when people say, when are institutions coming to crypto, I, it bothers me in a way because I feel like we are now the institutions, We've become institutions like on our own through kind of organic growth. Um, and that this asset class has become institutional without their involvement, right? How do you get to $2 trillion and argue that that's not an institutional asset class? You can't. Right. Um, and so, you know, all right, now, you know, and we got here without you, right? But if you want to get in, where can you take us from $2 trillion to whatever, $10 trillion, $100 trillion, whatever the number is? Um, and, and I do think that... Um, you know, we will need to work with the, the, the biggest institutions to actually make that happen. Yeah. So we talked about the big risks that yes. still exist, which I think are way less than they were. Do you have any wild predictions or things that you're most excited about that could happen? It doesn't have to be this month, but yeah. you know. You know, I, um, so I, 
I was chatting on the stage earlier at the conference about um, the Bitcoin story, right? And how the Bitcoin story is still being written. You know, it obviously started over a decade ago and we're in this state. And I don't know what the last chapter of the Bitcoin story looks like. But if you take the hyper Bitcoinization of the world to its logical conclusion, it is there's no more fiat currencies. Every country just has Bitcoin that adopts it as Bitcoin, a single currency for the Earth. For Earth. And, um, you know, that's kind of the, the end state for the, you know, Bitcoinizing the world. A couple of steps before then is central banks adopting Bitcoin as reserve currency. Sure. Right. Um, and then where we are right now, and you can argue as to whether Wall Streets and, 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 and structured products and rehypothecation is good or bad for Bitcoin. But my view is you don't get to central banks using Bitcoin as a reserve currency without going through all of this, right? right? This is a natural progression. It's boss, it's like right? a game of Mario. You have to do it, right? Um, <laughs> and, and Beat each Bowser on the exactly, way. Yeah. Exactly, you have to do it. Um, and so, you know, I do think that um, it, it's part of it. Now, the question is gonna be around what does the future look like? Um, I always thought that to get to that end state, whatever it is, is gonna take like centuries. Yeah. When I came into it, that's what I thought, right? And then, like, things just keep happening around the world that shortens that time cycle, right? Crazy. Right, like whether it's geopolitics or macroeconomic or central bank decisions. $100 million dollars donated in Ukraine right? overnight, yeah. You're like, you're like wow, the, the, and, and Bitcoin has done nothing. All Bitcoin has to do is just work. Just has to run, produce blocks, confirm transactions, and then like the Bitcoin story kind of like tells itself as like the world continues to like blow up around it, right? And so, my horizon for whatever the end state of Bitcoin has gone away from centuries, and now I'm in the decades time frame for what that story plays out. Next year, if I'm doing this with you, I was you, gonna just say right? if we do this next year, you'd be like, oh, uh, June. Yeah, give it a couple <laughs> months, right? Like I feel, I feel like that time cycle has gotten much, much shorter. I'm just afraid that uh, when it happens, we'll be like Mad Max. <laughs> yes, the <laughs> You're world. About all the things will have blown up. The world around. is on fire. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, uh, it's, it's it's it's. But I feel like Bitcoin gives people a way out. Yeah. If Bitcoin didn't exist and the still stuff was still happening, we'd be in a much worse position. Like 2008. Exactly. <laughs> so Shiba Inu is not going to be the uh, global reserve currency, I guess. I'm going to short that one. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll I think you've taken yeah. the, the right side I'll of take that. The so where can everybody follow you and keep up with you after this conversation? Yeah, so uh, it's genesistrading.com. Um, that's the website. Um, and uh, you can find me, Michael Morrow. I'm on Twitter. Um, just one word. Um, I don't put much stuff out there, but um, I think my marketing team wants me to start changing that. So. You know, the guys who are actually building and working 24-7 probably don't have time to tweet. It's probably, that's my excuse anyway. <laughs> I, 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 I think it's it. justified. Well, thank you so much. Stop. I really so appreciate, much. It. appreciate it. Time. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you haven't already left a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please do that now. Spotify just added ratings, so please go ahead and click that five star. I'll see you guys next time.